1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. On the program, Russia will celebrate a victory tomorrow, its defeat of the Nazis in World War II. This year, the holiday will almost certainly focus on Ukraine, but what would victory look like there for either side and who is most likely to achieve it? We will explore. Also, as America gets ready to mark a million dead from COVID, Bill Gates says we are not out of danger yet, not even close. I will talk to him about the pandemic and the inevitable next one. But first, here's my take. As the prospect of Roe v.ersus Wade being overturned looms large and America braces for another round of culture wars, I've been puzzling about why clashes over values seem to be more intense in the United States than elsewhere and why the competing camps seem more divided than before. One key to this might be found in a 2020 Pew survey showing that on many cultural issues, the American political divide was the widest among rich countries surveyed. Asked whether the country would be better off in the future if it sticks to its traditions and ways of life, 65% of Americans on the right said yes versus just 6% on the left, a 59-point gap. That compares with a 19-point gap in tradition-bound France. Asked whether being Christian was a crucial aspect of being a citizen of the country, the gap in America was 23 points compared to just 7 points in the U.K., These attitudes are fleshed out further in a 2018 Pew survey, which asked people in several rich countries whether religion should play a larger role in their societies. In America, 71% of people who identified as conservative said yes, while just 29% of liberals agreed. That difference, 42 percentage points, was off the charts compared to the other countries. The gap was 17 points larger than those in the next highest countries analyzed, Canada and Poland, and roughly four times the gap between right and left in Sweden and Germany. In the UK, 35% of conservatives wanted religion to play a larger role in their country versus 28% of liberals, a mere seven-point gap. So why is America exceptionally polarized? It's a tough question to answer. Many of the forces that seem to be at work globalization, technological change, immigration, are happening in other Western societies as well. In fact, if you use the size of trade in a country's economy as a measure, America is less globalized than many European countries. It's not even special when it comes to immigration. Canada and Sweden have a larger share of foreign-born people in their societies than does the United States. And of course, technology is at work everywhere. In his last book, Religion's sudden decline, the distinguished social scientist Ronald Engelhardt offered an answer. Engelhardt pointed out that the most striking cultural shift of our times is the decline in religiosity in most countries. When Engelhardt and his colleague Pippa Norris analyzed survey data on attitudes toward religion from 1981 to 2007, they found that most of the countries studied had become more religious. But between 2007 and 2020, the overwhelming majority became less religious. The standout in the recent studies is the U.S. of A. For a long time, America was the outlier in showing that rich, advanced countries can still be religious. In recent years, though, it has been reversing course to dramatic effect, Since 2007, the U.S. has been secularizing more rapidly than any other country for which we have data, notes Engelhardt, adding, by one widely recognized criterion, it now ranks as the 12th least religious country in the world. Engelhardt explains that this process of secularization has many causes, mostly relating to the decline of group norms, of mechanisms of control, and the rise of individualism. But here's the interesting part. As this broad shift is taking place in the US, it is coinciding with increased polarization. So the picture that emerges is of a country that is rapidly secularizing, but at the same time seeing a strong backlash to that process. Big changes are leading to big reactions. There are other factors at work. As always in America, race relations play an important role. This is one other area where the differences between left and right are much more marked than in other countries, as can be seen from the 2020 Pew survey. All of this highlights a new reality. You cannot really understand America anymore by looking at averages. It has become two countries. One is urban, more educated, multiracial, secular, and largely left of center. The other is rural, less educated, religious, white, and largely right of center. Engelhardt and the scholar Christian Walsall have a famous cultural map that plots countries according to their responses to questions about values. As of 2020, America was something of an outlier in the Western world, closer to countries like Uruguay and Vietnam than to Sweden and Denmark. But if one were to divide America into two countries, one red and one blue, I suspect that you would see that blue America would fit comfortably with northern European Protestant countries, while red America's cultural values would move it closer to Nigeria and Saudi Arabia. For the country's political future, the central question is now this. Can these two Americas find a way to live, work, tolerate, and cooperate with one another? If not, the abortion battle may be the precursor to even larger struggles. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Earlier this week, eight MiG fighters practiced flying over Moscow's Red Square in a Z formation. Z has become Russia's cryptic one-letter symbol to show support for its war in Ukraine. Tomorrow, the Jets will be taking part in a parade for Russia's annual Victory Day, which commemorates the defeat of the Nazis in 1945. 77 years later, however, no such Russian victory over Ukraine is in sight. I want to bring in Jennifer Gaffarella. She is the Chief of Staff and National Security Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War. Welcome, Jennifer. Tell us, we're all trying to understand. We, we get the Phase 1 trying to take over Kyiv in two or three days, failed for the Russians. But who is winning phase two, the war taking place in the south and east of Ukraine?
0: So phase two is still, unfortunately, in its early stages. There's a lot of war left to be fought. However, what we're seeing on the ground is Ukrainian forces able, first, to blunt Russian attempts to advance on multiple axes in eastern Ukraine, but also in recent days, Ukrainian forces succeeding in sustaining a counteroffensive around one of the contested towns of Kharkiv and pushing Russian forces back. They're pushing Russian forces back so effectively that they now have a chance, the Ukrainian forces, to advance to the Russian border, and we have the Russians destroying bridges as they are retreating. That's an important indicator of the potential that Ukraine will be able to mount a larger counteroffensive in coming weeks and potentially even begin to retake serious ground.
1: Um, but what about the the level of destruction the Russians are uh, wrecking? I mean, if you look at a place like Mariupol, uh, technically they don't control it, but they've emptied the city, they've destroyed 90% of the buildings. Um, is that is that part of a kind of strategy that the Russians have?
0: Putin's ambition is, in Ukraine is to eliminate Ukraine as a nation, and as an identity, as a people. And so we see with the Russian advances into Ukraine, a you know genocidal attempt to erase what it means to be Ukrainian and to, in some cases, try to eliminate Ukrainian villages completely from the map. But I think it's important to note that while Putin's op- offensives um, and his aims are destructive, he's nowhere near achieving his actual political goals. And that's where we really need to evaluate The success or failure of the Russians and the Ukrainians. Strategically, Ukrainians are fighting for their right to live, their right to exist as a nation, and they're succeeding in that. They won the first phase of the war, but they've also maintained their unity and they've rallied NATO and the Western world to their defense. That's incredibly important. And while that doesn't mean that Ukrainians are suffering any less on the ground, it does mean Ukraine has a chance to win this war and to rebuild.
1: The fear is that Russia will be able to pour many more men uh, soldiers into this fight, especially if uh, on the May Day, uh, at the May Day celebrations, Putin were to formally declare war rather than a special military operation. If that happened, uh, does that change the game in the sense that the Russians now have recruits whom they can pour into Ukraine?
0: There's a lot more ifs. And so the answer is not necessarily. Uh, first and foremost, new mobilized recruits won't necessarily be combat effective, certainly anytime soon. So the question is how seriously and how capably are the russians going to train these forces the russians have already taken incredibly high casualties in their experienced and combat effective units and sending in individual replacements for killed or wounded soldiers does not actually recreate effective and cohesive combat formations the other factor here is that it takes time right and so we have mobilization on the russian side which will take weeks if not months but we have momentum on the Ukrainian side. And I think it's very essential for the United States and the West to recognize that now is the time to support Ukraine, because even if Russia declares a general mobilization, it doesn't mean that Ukraine can't actually still win this war.
1: And finally, Jennifer, what would it take? Um, you said to me previously, um, it's this is a war that is going to be de- decided by artillery. Explain what you mean and what Ukraine needs.
0: So the United States has significantly increased the amount of artillery Artillery we're providing to the Ukrainians, which is essential, but the Ukrainians still need more. Um, they need a more robust pipeline, which means that these weapon systems and resupply means to get to the Ukrainians essentially before they need it, not at the last minute. Uh, but the Ukrainians are also asking for more advanced uh, systems and t- systems that will provide them more range, which is going to be essential as the Ukrainians attempt to go on the counteroffensive, which requires them to strike Russian targets in more depth and overpower Russian forces that are attempting to dig in in order to prevent exactly those kinds of losses to Ukraine.
1: Jennifer, that is a fascinating set of insights. Thank you so much. Um, Next on GPS, the humanitarian crisis caused by this war. Nearly 6 million refugees have fled Ukraine, and those are the ones lucky enough to have gotten out when we come back. The First Lady Jill Biden ventured into Ukraine today after spending time on this Mother's Day across the border in Slovakia, meeting with mothers and children who had fled the war zone. They are among the nearly six million Ukrainian refugees from the war. Those left behind in Ukraine face homelessness, hunger, injury and death. It is safe to say that Ukraine is a humanitarian nightmare. David Miliband is just back from there. He is the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee and of course the former British Foreign Secretary. David, uh, tell us what you can about where you were and what you can tell us of, you know, the, the state and mood of the Ukrainian
2: people. Yeah, I was in Moldova and in central Ukraine visiting International Rescue Committee staff and clients. And three things come through overwhelmingly strongly from every conversation. First, the sheer scale of the displacement as a result of the fighting you've rightly highlighted six million refugees into neighboring states but there's at least that number of people six seven eight million on the run inside their own country just for perspective it took three months for a million people to flee Syria this war has been going on for not three months and we've got 12 13 14 million people on the run secondly fear stalks every conversation an inch below the surface there's desperate fear of a phone call that a husband, a father, a brother has been killed. And as I was talking to women from Ukraine in Moldova, one of them gets a phone call from Odessa saying, it's my son, there's a missile strike, excuse me, I have to go and talk to him. So the fear is right close to the surface. Thirdly, I can say that there... The overwhelming humanitarian response in the Western world to donate money and support means that this is a much better funded humanitarian response than in other parts of the world. Many times more funds are available, and that means organisations like the IRC, we can deliver the support for healthcare, the deliver... The the cash assistance that allows people to buy in the shops, because there is normality in large parts of the country, despite the fact that missile strikes are taking place. So, is the Ukrainian government in this in this chaos and war? Is it actually functioning in that sense? Yes, that's a very important point. In many parts of the world, it's the UN that has to organise a health cluster or a cash support cluster. Here, you've got a Ukrainian government in large parts of the country organising the health system, making sure that different parts of the country are getting the supplies that they need. International NGOs, local civil societies working closely. There's also a functioning economy, which is absolutely critical. The best thing you can do in, for someone who's in humanitarian distress is to give them some cash so that they can actually support themselves through the local economy. People having to rent in uh, Europe if they've arrived, but also inside Ukraine. That's very important. One other thing. Often people think that the trauma side of this, the mental health side of this, is a sideshow. It's absolutely central. Every single person is traumatized by what they and their country are going through. And, of course, they don't know how long this is going to go on. The the response in Germany, where I also was, people I met, they were housing Ukrainians. And it's one thing to do it for two days, two weeks, two months. They don't know if this is going to be two years. And that's requiring a massive mobilization. Because, of course, if the sort of fighting that your previous guest, Jennifer, from the Institute for the Study of War... If that fighting carries on, if that offensive carries on, you could have another five million fleeing into Europe. And that becomes a huge logistical as well as political challenge.
1: So uh, what you're describing is a situation that's fairly normal because you are not in the places where there, there was the most active fighting going on. But weren't there missile strikes? And and what what does that do to a city to sort of randomly and sporadically
2: have these missiles destroying civilian areas that it really is a great point because what you've got is a split screen you've got a really 20th century sort of war going on in the east and in the south battle lines you've been hearing about Kharkiv uh, this morning and then in the rest of the country you have something much more asymmetric you just don't know when the missile strike's going to come Odessa uh, Venezia um Kyiv itself Lviv and that increases the fear and that's increasing the flow of people even though it's not a front line. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind as we think about planning for different scenarios, humanitarian scenarios, going forward. Um, you then
1: went from Ukraine to Germany. Um, everyone is wondering are the Germans fully behind this? There is this, you know, the, the spat going on even between the Ukrainian government and the German government because the Germans have been so. Uh, pro-Russian there. The Ukrainians would argue, certainly the Social Democrats, uh, dependent on Russian energy. Um, what is your sense of whether Germany has really uh, transformed itself on this issue?
2: I think it has, and I think there's a really important category error being made uh, around the world, especially in some of the uh, commentary. Germans at an elite level, some of whom I met at the uh, senior reaches of government, but also at a local level, They've really made a fundamental move in their own geopolitical positioning and their own assessment of Russia. However, they do this with deliberation, with caution, with the opposite of machismo. There's no machismo about doubling your defence budget in Germany. There's a real sense of responsibility arising from history. And I think it's incredibly important that we don't mistake this caution, this deliberation, with an absence of determination. I felt, from the German leadership that I met, but also from German civil society, they know that this is deadly serious, they know it requires fundamental change in how they position themselves, but they also know that they've got to be in it for the long haul. And that takes real care, real planning, real determination.
1: And I suppose for people in Europe and the world, it it is not a bad thing that there is not too much German machismo.
2: No, that's the point, and we should, I think, be humble about that because there's determination, but they know their history, and we should know it too. David Mowbend,
1: always a pleasure. Thank um, you. Next on GPS: Bill Gates and how to prevent the next pandemic. Nearly 15 million people around the world have died as a result of the pandemic, according to estimates out this week from the WHO. And we are about to hit a new grim milestone 1 million confirmed dead from the disease in the US.
3: If anything,
1: Bill Gates started sounding the alarm about pandemics long before COVID emerged. And he's become one of the world's most important figures on public health. His new book is How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. I started the interview, though, on a topic that has been pushing COVID out of the headlines. Bill Gates, pleasure to have you on. Good to talk to you. So since we last talked, a small thing has happened. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and it feels like we're in a new world. We are going to be seeing higher energy prices, higher food prices for years to come. It seems difficult to see how this resolves itself very quickly. What is that? say to you about the economic outlook for the next few years. Well,
3: it comes on top of the pandemic where government debt levels were already very very high and there were already some su- supply chain problems. And so it's, you know, likely to accelerate the inflationary problems that virtual economies have and, you know, force an increase in interest rates that eventually will uh result in an economic slowdown. So I'm afraid the the bears on this one have a, a pretty strong argument that, that concerns me a lot, you know, particularly because the poor countries, whenever the rich countries have these big budget problems, you know, the health needs of places like Africa get deprioritized.
1: Let's talk about the book. Uh, what's really important, it seems to me, is that you're reminding us that not only is this pandemic not over, but we need to try to think about how to how to prevent the next one, um, and not forget that that's you know that we didn't do so well in the, on the on the last one. But first, let's just talk about um, you, you. You've made the point uh, that you could end up with variants that are transmissible and and more lethal. I think we've tended to assume that what you're going to see is an extension of the pattern we've seen, which is. More transmissible variants, but much less lethal. You're saying that doesn't have to. It doesn't have to keep going that way. No, we we've been lucky, and I think there's a good chance we'll keep being lucky.
3: But you could see a variant that had worse health effects. And right now, the COVID is very dangerous uh, for older people or people with some medical conditions. But for a lot of people, uh, not. You know, uh, a risk of death. And so we're not out of this one. Um, and a lot of the innovations we need, like vaccines that provide longer protection, broader protection, uh, those can help us for this pandemic, and we need them for the future. I mean, it's hard to overstate how unprepared we were uh, for, you know what was sadly even somewhat predictable. And so hopefully this is our big wake-up call uh, to, you know, do like we do for earthquake and fire and war to really, you know, be able to respond correctly.
1: So, Bill, let's let's imagine the next pandemic, okay? It starts up, as many of these have started up, somewhere in Asia, probably East Asia for a whole variety of reasons. Um, what is the Bill Gates plan? What would you like to see happen when you first the, first, the first time you hear about some people getting infected by some kind of airborne virus? Yeah, the big
3: risk is human to human transmissible respiratory uh, virus. You'd like to have a group um, connected with the World Health Organization that sees that outbreak early and is able to go in and look. Uh, sequence what it is, understand the nature of it, uh, have some tools that aren't dependent on the specific pathogen that you can give people not just masks but also some drugs to block transmission. And you want to stop it before it gets to lots of countries, which is when it becomes a, a so called pandemic. You've got to nip it in the bud. You know, these things are exponential, and so you, avoiding cases here. You know, saves lots of cases downstream.
1: Like you point out in the in the book that if we had stopped uh, COVID, what was it in the, by by the middle of March, the number of people who would have died would have been, you know, a, a fraction few percent.
3: By, yeah, that's right. Uh, what, it, what it is. now. Yeah, those first hundred days uh, to recognize you've got a problem and do containment uh, counts a lot. You know, some countries like Australia ended up with ten uh, percent of the death rate that the rich countries including the united states had and that was you know they moved a bit faster to get diagnosis and quarantine policies in place and you know it's that's a big difference 90 percent of all the lives that we lost would have been saved
1: next on gps bill gates says we need a germ team what does that mean he'll explain Back now with more of my interview with the multi-billionaire businessman and philanthropist Bill Gates, talking about his new book, "How to Prevent the Next Pandemic." So, you'd you have this group, and it's called Germ. It's, exactly. Uh, it's uh, I spell out the acronym. What is it? Yeah, uh, that's the Global
3: Epidemic uh, Response and Mobilization Group. G E
1: R M. Uh,
3: managed by the WHO,
1: and you think it would cost about a billion dollars a year? So not a huge investment.
3: No, you know it's tiny. I mean, compared to the numbers we talk about with defense budgets or climate change or oh, what you know, we medical ended up costs. spending
1: on COVID in terms of the relief we had to give people for the lockdowns, which was in the trillions.
3: Yes, we're fourteen trillion of economic damage, and uh, you know still counting. And so it's it's one of the cheapest insurance policies. You've got to make sure that people stay full time uh, getting us to drill and practice, which is hard for things that don't come along very often. You know, with earthquakes, it's almost good that they are small ones or fires that you have small ones because it always reminds you, oh, there could be a big one. In terms of disease going global, doesn't happen much, but it'll be happening more either, as you say, Asia is a big risk and Africa is also a big risk because the boundary between humans and animals is getting uh, closer and closer.
1: So what strikes me about the book is you don't talk about what seems to me a central dilemma, if not the central dilemma, which is we're living in an age of increasing nationalism. And I can't see... I mean, look at what happened this time. The Chinese government basically refused to allow people in, refused to... They they did sequence and they shared that. But other than that, they were very protective. How do you get around that? Well, they... You know, we're a bit slower
3: in ringing the alarm bell, both domestically and globally, than they should have been. Uh, some of their scientists worked collaboratively with scientists outside of China and made sure the sequence got out uh, by like January 14th. That was enough time. Uh, I do worry that if the outbreak was in a very poor country with bad health structure, unless we have various tripwires where we see and we send in. Global expertise; it could fester uh, for quite some time. So every day counts in a big way. You know, is the world more nationalistic than the past? Um, you know, uh, the world's always been pretty pretty nationalistic, and yet we're in this together. Uh, you know, it's not like China's escaped uh, completely from the ravages. We all participate in the global economy. Uh, you know so i think the world health community uh is up to the task despite the polarization
1: but back to the the nationalism because it does strike me as a, sort of such a central problem and we're living with you know more tariffs than than before i mean it's not just china that's doing the made in china it's india that's doing made in india when ppp stuff happened everyone was like we need to make this stuff at home there's much greater sense of resilience Onshoring. In that world, how do you get through this idea that, that you need a global response? You need a global team? Everyone has to be willing to share data.
3: Well, there are problems like some terrorism things, certainly climate change, where the world has to work together. The supply chain that created these new vaccines was very global. You know, a German company with Turkish immigrants yeah. uh, drawing on US funded science. Partnered up with a, a big, uh, with Pfizer, you know, taking no government money, you know, creating a completely novel vaccine platform that hadn't been used before. There's a lot of great stories about how the world came together. You know, our foundation funded uh, Serum Institute in India, and they ramped up the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine and made 1.4 billion. Uh, a lot of those got used in India, but you know, a lot of lives were saved. So. If you really get autarkic uh, on health and pandemic issues, you are in very deep trouble. It's okay to fund a few mask factories, but you need all the data coming together. You need information sharing coming together. You need the best scientists or inventing new drugs and you know running trials that will cost many countries. So you know I'm not giving up that global cooperation uh, will happen uh, because. You know, it's very hard, particularly for the lower income countries, to stop these things without the world working cooperatively.
1: Looking for silver linings, one of the things you talk about, which I thought was really interesting, is it, uh, clearly the pandemic causes a lot of mental health issues, distress, and things like that. But you point out that this is an area where digitization has actually provided a surprising kind of upside or a, a, a solution. Explain.
3: Yeah, so the idea of video conferencing was very much a niche thing, even though it's been at world's fairs, you know, forever. You know, there were a few people who did that, but during the pandemic, any engagement, uh, sales meeting, meeting with a doctor, you know, having a funeral, you know, people were forced to say, "Hey, can we do that digitally?" And the software improved a lot. I think the medical vertical, uh, particularly for uh, behavioral Mental type consultation will be forever changed. And we'll all think, do I need to go to that convention or could it be online? You know, my way of engaging with African leaders on health issues was made far more efficient as they had a designated block of time that they set aside for health organizations to uh, take 20-minute blocks and succinctly uh, discuss an issue with them. So I, I think that is a a very positive thing. And the software involved is going to get a lot better. Uh, So I I wouldn't underestimate that that accelerated digitization, including in health and education, substantially.
1: Finally, Bill, I have to ask you one question. You are probably uh, one of the most admired people in the world, not just in the United States. You make the top of these lists. And people have asked you the secrets for your success, um, everything from you know what do you drink, what do you what do you read. So since we last talked, you have had a setback. Um, what you know, as I say, this is somebody who's divorced myself, who a lot of people regard it as a failure. Do you regard it as a failure, and what lesson did you draw from it?
3: Well, certainly, I I feel bad about uh, mistakes I made that contributed to it. So yes, uh, it's a a failure. Um, I'm very lucky that I get to keep working uh, with Melinda who, you know, created the foundation and, you know, we get to take the resources from Microsoft and from Warren Buffett's generosity and uh, have a lot of impact. Um, you know, it's a humbling experience. I don't, you know, have the answers in those realms like I hope I do in things like climate technology or vaccine technology.
1: Bill Gates, thank you. And always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos will be remembered by history. He for his dictatorial and destructive rule of the Philippines. She for her extraordinary excesses, especially her shoe collection. Despite all that, Their son looks likely to be elected president of the Philippines tomorrow. How? That story when we come back. And now for the last look. The tension between liberal democracy and authoritarian populism that we've seen play out across Europe in recent weeks is facing a new test in an entirely different part of the world. I'm talking about the Philippines, where voters will go to the polls on Monday in what one observer called the most consequential election in the country's recent history to choose a president to replace Rodrigo Duterte. But if you think that Duterte's brutal six-year regime with its attacks on the press and its deadly war on drugs have tipped the scales in favor of democracy, you may be wrong. As the journalist Sheila Corona writes for the FT, the current frontrunner is the only son of the country's notorious former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, who, alongside his wife Imelda, became international symbols of brutality, excess, and corruption during his decades long reign. Over his time in office, he accumulated $10 billion by some estimates. As The Guardian writes, he invoked a period of martial law that lasted for nearly a decade in which tens of thousands of political adversaries, student leaders, and writers were tortured and more than 3,000 killed. It all came to an end in 1986 when hundreds of thousands took to the streets in protest of Marcos's rule and in support of democracy. But the Philippines, like many other countries, has fallen victim to a dangerous backsliding. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., often known as Bong Bong, has refused to apologize for his father's rule. He himself has been convicted of tax evasion and has mischaracterized his education at Oxford. And he has indicated that if elected president, he would protect Duterte against prosecution for his drug war in the International Criminal Court. And yet Marcos Jr. leads the polls. According to one survey, he's at 58%. His closest competitor, the current Philippines' vice president, Lenny Robredo, has run on democratic reform, good governance, transparency. She has criticized Duterte's brutality. And she is polling at around 25%. How did this happen? In part, it is born of the country's failures to fully reckon with its past. Marcos Sr. was never convicted of a crime in the country's courts, some of which are staffed with people appointed during his rule. The billions that the family embezzled have never been fully recovered. Moreover, the dynasty has already lived on. Imelda Marcos, whose thousands of pairs of shoes became an emblem of corruption during her tenure as First Lady, has been elected to the House of Representatives four times since her husband's ouster. As for his son, he has benefited from a high degree of nostalgia for the supposed lost glory of his father's rule. Many of Marcos Jr.'s supporters were not alive during the dictatorship. Textbooks tend not to grapple with its brutal legacy. And Marcos is extremely adept at manipulating the message online. As The Washington Post reports, videos abound on YouTube and TikTok that glorify and romanticize the family. Social media is rife with the rosy revisionist history of the dictatorship. Rumors float that if elected, Marcos will distribute gold to the public. This web of disinformation is extremely effective. About 99% of Filipinos are online, and over half of them can't identify fake news when they see it. What's happening in the Philippines is just another version of the same nostalgia-fueled populism we've seen all over the world. But in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it has newfound resonance. The Philippines' democratic transition occurred five years before the fall of the Soviet Union. The Constitution of 1987 was a moment of hope. Crucially, it established term limits. But ultimately, the work was incomplete. Reform stalled. The past was forgotten, then dressed up and paraded as glory. What we see in the Philippines is just one example of the contest playing out across the world. Let's hope for a better outcome there and elsewhere. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.